more so than Matthew or Luke, when Mark narrates the stilling of the storm in chapter 4, he accentuates the severity of the storm that is confronting Jesus and the disciples. Quite literally, the text reads that a great wind storm or wind swirl of wind arose. Translators have often offered numerous renderings of verse 37 in an attempt to capture the severity of the storm. For instance, the the most recent uh, common English Bible reads, gale force winds arose and waves crashed against the boat so that the boat was being swamped. But perhaps my favorite word choice belongs to the NIV. They opt for the reading, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Mark, however, does more than merely accentuate the gravity of the storm. He also accentuates the failure of the disciples. The only thing in Mark 4 that is worse than the furious, violent storm is the reaction of the disciples to that storm. Fear dominates these hardy fishermen. Fear begins to dictate their actions. They panic and they begin to work feverishly to bail the water out of the boat in a futile attempt to save their lives. But fear not only dictates their actions, it also consumes their thoughts. Their perception of Jesus changes in the midst of the storm. They even begin to doubt Jesus' goodness. Ultimately, fear drowns the disciples' faith in Christ. Had they simply recalled the scriptures, they would have known how they were supposed to respond. They would have remembered the God who separated the waters and displaced the chaos in the very beginning. They should have remembered the God who commanded the waters of the Red Sea and the Jordan River to stand down. Like Israel in the past, they should have turned to God in faith with their pleas, petitions, and even their laments. And finally, they should have recognized that the Son of God was already with them in the boat that was being swamped. Instead, the furious squall that rages above and below the waters eventually moves inside of the disciples where it wreaks havoc on their ability to see, hear, or understand the Son of God. The storm of wind and rain gives way to a storm of doubt and despair. Unfortunately, we have all experienced similar storms in life. And if we haven't already, we know we will. It's merely a fact of human life. At some point, violent whirlwinds and unrelenting waves swamp our boats. Truett Seminary has in no way been exempt from stormy seas. Over the years, numerous students, graduates, faculty, and staff have fought life-threatening diseases, afflictions, and hardships. 
Others have been overtaken by their own bad decisions, serious missteps, and severe consequences. Most recently, though, it feels as if the Truett ship has been pummeled by the death of Jake Gibbs in January, the death of Dr. Brewer's brother-in-law last month, the serious medical conditions that are facing Corey Shibler and young Elia Gibson, the head injuries sustained by Issa Torres when a car struck him while he was riding his bike at the beginning of spring break, and those are only the storms we talk about. Waves repeatedly crash in upon all of us at some point in our lives. Sometimes those waves are clearly evil, bad, or at least not good. At other times, even heavy doses of blessings, even heavy doses of good things, like a seminary education, can threaten to swamp our boats. Based on reports I've heard from some of you, you might describe Dr. Non's oral final as a furious squall. As a result, we need to ask how. How you and I should respond when the great wind storms of wind strike our lives. What is the proper response to crisis? Here, rather than providing a one-size-fits-all response to violent storms, the scriptures primarily give us examples to recall, both positive examples and negative examples. They often show us what to do and what not to do, and the disciples in Mark 4 are most certainly an unforgettable example of what not to do when the hurricane force winds strike. When the storms strike, we should not allow fear to rule us. We should not allow fear to dictate our actions, consume our thoughts, or drown our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never fail to turn to God in prayer, even with our pleas, laments, and sometimes even our complaints, so that those storms will not move inside of us and wreak havoc on our relationship with God. Despite the disciples' failures, Mark thankfully includes some good news in this story. He not only accentuates the severity of the storm and the failure of the disciples, but Mark also accentuates the remarkable calmness that Jesus brings to the situation. Mark actually uses the Greek word megas, or great, three times in these six, six verses. After describing a great windstorm of wind in verse 37, Mark goes on to describe a great calm, or perhaps a perfect calm, in verse 39, and then he begins to describe the great fear that the disciples begin to fear in verse 41. So he talks about a great storm, a great calm, and a great fear. Because Jesus was not overtaken by the sea storm, he was able to introduce a great calm, a perfect calm. Far greater than the typical ending to a storm, this calm was as serene as the squall was violent. 
Yet Jesus was concerned about more than simply the natural elements. He was concerned about the disciples. In part, he calmed the storm so that he could calm the disciples' faith. Hopefully, we experience and we proclaim that same great peace today. Jesus brings a calm that is far better than the ceasefire at the end of a long war or the settlement at the end of an embattled divorce or even the temporary relief we feel when the Big 12 signs a new TV contract. That's supposed to be a little bit humorous there. It was to me. I don't know if it is to you. Jesus brings the perfect peace, the perfect calm that passes all understanding. In response to Jesus' intervention, the disciples began to fear a great fear. Perhaps we would want to talk about a greater fear, a more worthy fear than the one that they were previously experiencing. At least temporarily, they experienced the fear that results when one's perspectives are rearranged by an encounter with the divine. They experienced the kind of reordering that forces us onto our knees as we worship the Almighty God. I wish I could say that the disciples learned from their mistakes and maintained their reverent fear forever. But unfortunately, they do not respond any better to crisis at the end of Mark's gospel than they do at the beginning. In Mark 4, the disciples see the storm that is sinking their boats. They panic in the midst of it. Their faith in Jesus is exchanged for fear. They fail to cry out to God in prayer, and a chasm develops between them and Jesus. But at the end of the gospel, in Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples completely fail to recognize that another furious squall is gathering steam. They don't even see it coming. Jesus had just put them on high alert at the Last Supper. He had just warned them about a storm that was brewing like none other. He raised the warning flags indicating that rough waters were ahead. Yet in Gethsemane, their only reaction to this ominous situation is one of laxity. Only Mark tells us that on three separate occasions, Jesus warned the disciples. He exhorted them to pray and to, to stay alert. Yet after all three exhortations, the disciples fall asleep. The implication seems to be that if the disciples had done what Jesus had said, and if they had actually prayed, and if they had actually remained alert, they just might have weathered that storm. But instead... The night overtakes them. They are destined to repeat the same sequence that we saw in Mark 4. They will soon experience the gale force winds of Jesus' crucifixion. They will experience a crisis of faith, faith and they will allow chaos to conquer them once again. Whereas they fell in Mark 4 because they're too focused on their own life-threatening circumstances. The disciples fell in Mark 14 because they have lowered their guard far too low. They don't even recognize the danger that's lurking. 
1995, my wife Kristen and I, <coughs> excuse me, my wife Kristen and I were living in New Jersey. We'd been trying to get pregnant and we were having difficulties doing so, and so Kristen underwent some fertility testing. Unfortunately, the doctors later realized that Kristen was actually pregnant at the time that they conducted an internal biopsy, an action that had the potential to harm the womb and our newly conceived baby. Perhaps due as much to legal issues as medical protocols, our pregnancy was then classified as a high-risk pregnancy, and we were slated for advanced testing in the high-risk neonatal unit of the hospital in Trenton. All of the medical personnel kept telling us how lucky we were to have one of the top five neonatologists in the world working on our case. And we soon discovered that she was indeed very knowledgeable, but she also did not have much of a bedside manner. We had scheduled the test, gone to the hospital, finished the test, and they had taken us back to the doctor's office where we were to meet the doctor for the very first time. We sat in her office for about 10 minutes by ourselves before she entered briskly, sat down, looked both of us square in the eyes, and asked, are you two biologically related? For example, are you biological siblings or cousins? <laughs> now, I realized that I had and still have a very thick tick. Texas accent, um, and, and New Jerseyans often don't have the highest opinion of Texans. And I realize I'm not the brightest looking guy in all the world, but we were absolutely shocked at the abruptness of her question. After we answered the question, and by the way, the answer is no, we're not siblings. <laughs> The doctor then proceeded to tell us that there was a very high possibility that our son was Down syndrome. They'd measured various parts of his body and his internal organs, and three of his measurements were outside normal ranges. Then before Kristen and I could even catch up mentally to the conversation, let alone emotionally, the doctor immediately transitioned into a description of the process we needed to follow to terminate the pregnancy. She did not demand a decision from us at that exact moment, but she stressed that we had no more than two weeks to take action. Our world was really turned upside down in a matter of a few moments. Walking in, I somehow knew that we were facing the risk that our baby could have been physically injured in the biopsy, but I was completely caught off guard by a threat I never saw coming. What's more, the world simply started moving faster than I felt comfortable with it moving. We somehow realized that our reaction to this crisis would have a lifelong trajectory. Most of all, we realized that we needed to chart our course quickly and definitively. And we did not have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm not really ready to answer that question at this point. We didn't have the luxury of saying, you know, I think I'd like to take a seminary course on that topic so that I can formulate my theology and nuance my opinions. Often, 
Both furious squalls and tempting nights pounce on us when we are not looking. And we will often not have the luxury to delay our decisions. The only relevant question is how will we, how will we respond in that moment? The Gospels do not teach us that Jesus performed miracles so that he could escape peril. The good news is not that Jesus was able to avoid his trials and tribulations. Instead, in Gethsemane, Jesus faces his own furious squall. He experiences great agony, yet he refuses to let his pain and suffering alter his relationship with the Father. In Gethsemane, Jesus shows us how to respond to crisis. First, Jesus anticipates the storm and the temptations that lay ahead of him. In essence, Jesus deals with the furious squalls before they even show themselves. Second, in the midst of the storm, Jesus turns to the Father and not away from him. His reaction is opposite to that of the disciples in Mark 4 when they panic and in Mark 14 when they fell asleep. In both instances, they failed to turn to God in prayer, but Jesus, however, repeatedly turned to the Father in prayer. Through prayer and communion with the Father, Jesus leaned into the relationship during the midst of trials and temptations and not away from it. Yet ultimately, Jesus' power in Mark 14 is best seen in his act of submission to the Father's will. Whereas in Mark 4, Jesus uses his power to calm the storm. In Mark 14, Jesus uses his power to submit to the Father's will rather than exerting his own. He uses his power to deny himself. Jesus did not need to learn the fear of the Lord through crisis as the disciples did. Instead, the son possessed great reverence for the father's will long before he even traveled to Jerusalem. Ultimately, Jesus charted his course before the chaos began, before the chaos could move inside of him or overwhelm him. He resolved that his relationship with the father would always take precedence over his circumstances. Today, we must first and foremost put our faith in the triune God who has the power to calm the furious squalls of life, not because God will prevent all of the storms from happening, but because God is the one who walks with us through the squalls. God is in the boat with us, even before the waves threaten us. And God is in the garden, even before temptation comes. Consequently, Because our strength is found in God alone, we must continually seek communion with the Father so that we will be ready when crisis arrives, so that we will be prepared both for furious squalls and tempting nights. We must also realize, though, that there is often a correlation between the depth of our communion with the Father prior to the onset of crisis and the amount of strength we draw from the Father during crisis. 
Students, if you'll permit me, I'd like to speak directly to you for a moment. Please forgive me if I'm about to sound too legalistic or too parental. And please forgive me for speaking a little bit more in a style that sounds like we're sitting in my office rather than in Truett's Chapel. I want you to know that the faculty and staff and I pray for you all. When I pray for you, I most certainly pray that you will survive the furious squalls and the battering waves that you're facing right now and those that you will face in the future. But honestly, you've repeatedly demonstrated that you know how to turn to God in the midst of storms. You gather together as a community, you pour yourselves out to God with pleas, petitions, and sometimes complaints. You camp out for weeks at a time in a hospital waiting room. You pay your friends electric bills when no one's looking. But most often, when I pray for you, I just pray that you'll survive those tempting nights. I pray that you're preparing now for the future storms. Those unexpected decisions and those life-altering temptations. The kind that creep up on you without warning. I pray that you will remain vigilant, not only during those furious squalls on the raging seas, but also during those long, sleepy nights in the quiet gardens. I frequently pray that you will not squander these seminary years, but rather that you will use this time to cultivate a reverent fear and a deep communion with God. The spiritual disciplines of reading scripture, praying, communing with God, and denying yourself are vital for all of us. Despite our studies and despite the formation that takes place inside Truett's walls, it's the decisions that we make outside of this building that may well establish lifelong trajectories for all of us. The disciples repeatedly squandered their opportunities to receive a full dose of God's strength and God's wisdom prior to the onset of crisis. Jesus, however, anchored himself in God's will through prayer. What about us? What will we do? How will we respond?